If you've got a Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, And if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, we have got you covered. There are Bibles on the center aisle all the way down. If you want to flag somebody down, they'd be happy to to pass one to you uh, to make sure you're covered for today. Genesis chapter 12 is where we are. We've been in the middle, uh, we're now in the middle of an overview study of Genesis, which is one of the oldest books in the Bible and which is attempting to explain a lot of the things that we all take for granted about the world. Especially the first part of Genesis, it's really an explanation of things like where we came from, these most basic questions. Where did we come from? Who put us here? What does that being require of us? And what went wrong, since we all recognize that things aren't what they should be? What went wrong, and how could or should that thing be fixed? Those are the questions Genesis has been trying to answer, and and in, in chapters 1 through 11, a pretty bleak picture has been painted. We've only covered 11 chapters in a book that is this long, just at the beginning. But already, there is a huge and uh, track record of untold thousands of years of corruption. Though the world started in beauty and as a reflection of the God who made it. Quickly, the things that he had made decided to replace him with their own authority. And we've seen evidence of that in several different cases throughout the first chapters of Genesis, from from Adam and Eve in the garden to the Tower of Babel that we looked at last week, that bizarre account of the the nations all being at one in this early phase and deciding to unite in order to try to make a name for themselves over against what God had called them to do and how that scattered them to the ends of the earth. And really, the way that I think about where we've come so far, I, I can't look at it and not think about it in the terms of, of Star Wars. Because, I mean, I'm a Star Wars nerd, for one thing. I'm, surely I'm not alone. Come on now. Star Wars nerds, please. I get, I've got one, two, maybe. I don't, I'm not believing it. Well, this may fall flat, but I'm going with it anyway. One, scholar, one Old Testament scholar talked about this passage as the central passage in Genesis. And I think the reason is that, is that what's been painted so far is an all-encompassing view of the world as a place deeply marred by sin and hopeless. And then all of a sudden, the story comes to a screeching halt with the advent of this new figure, Abraham. Just like in Star Wars, in the original episode one, the one that's called A New Hope, when it opens, the world, the universe as, as it's known, is in the grips of this evil force. The dark side of the force has, has pretty much wiped out any resistance to its claims to power. That's the scene that's set. And then you are introduced to this one solitary figure living on some God-forsaken planet that's got two moons somehow. Or maybe it's two suns, I don't know. It, clearly in obscurity, the guy has nothing going for him. He works for his uncle. He's, he's unknown by him. He has no friends his own age, barely. And all of a sudden, you're, you're, you're let in, from the perspective of the narrator, you're told that this guy, this long shot of a guy, is the one upon whom the fate of the entire world turns. The, the, the first episode is called A New Hope, because in the midst of this great darkness, all of a sudden, some new beam of light emerges. I think that's the way we're meant to, to read the, the appearance of Abraham in chapter 12 here. Just think about it. The first 11 chapters of this book have, have covered a period that we don't even know how long it was. It could have been thousands upon thousands of years. All in 11 chapters. 
Then we get to chapter 12, the birth of Abraham, and all of a sudden it comes to a screeching halt. And the next 10 chapters describe 25 years in the life of this one guy who had no children and no place to call his own. Ten chapters, almost the same amount given to the whole history of the world at this point, given to the 25 years in the life of this man. Why? Clearly, the author of this book is trying to tell us that this is where the world turns. This is where a new hope is born. It's not where you'd expect it. We're going to get into that in a minute. But it is a, a hope nonetheless. And what, what's introduced at the beginning of chapter 12 are a set of promises that God makes to this one figure. And this, this set of promises sets the template for the rest of the Bible's story. Because from here, everything that happens up to and including Jesus Christ and his coming that we still wait for is all in fulfillment of the promises first made to Abraham here in chapter 12. A new hope is born, and, and that's what we're introduced to in this passage. One scholar put it this way. He said, in the narrative world, it's as if the world has been waiting for this moment, the arrival of Abram, the tenth from Noah. What we have here is Israel connecting its distinct history, history of the people called out by God to redeem the world that had been broken by sin, connecting its history to everything that had come before, even up to and including the creation of the world. So what we want to do today, what we want to do today is try to capture what it is that God is promising to do for and through Abraham, and then to try to tease out something about how he's going to do it, this vehicle of salvation that Abraham is, and for whom he's supposed to do it, the scope of these promises. Remember, these are the promises that set the stage for the rest of the Bible. Now we want to understand what they are, who they came to, what that, and what that says about how we relate to them, and then who they're intended for. That's where we're headed. Would you mind standing with me now as we read the story together? We're going to read from God's Word, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took, his, took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Then and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is God's word. You can be seated. So what is the content of these promises? We've seen that this is the moment at which the history of the world takes its turn. So what is it that God is promising to do to solve the problems that we've just spent the last few weeks learning about together from Genesis 1 through 11? What's God going to do? The story opens with Abram 
I'm probably going to end up calling him Abraham all morning because that's what his name gets changed to, and that's what I'm used to. I'm just going to warn you. Opens with Abraham, guy who enters in obscurity. I mean, it's hard to read this for me and not think of Luke Skywalker, a guy living in this godforsaken place among tents and, and doesn't own any property or very little, very little place to stake his claim. Certainly not the kind of guy you'd want to build an empire on. But God speaks to him. Just as God had spoken over the chaos of the early phases of creation, and he speaks a word and order is formed out of that chaos, so now out of the chaos that is Abram's life and the history of the world at this point, God speaks into it and order is formed. He speaks unprompted and makes promises to Abram that he could not have deserved before this point. And here's the content of those promises. I think the key to it, verses 1 to 3, is his promise to make of Abram a great nation. He promises to make of Abram a great nation. And what we learn in, in later in this text and in, in, in later in the Abram story is that what it means to be a great nation involves land, a place to live, and descendants, people to fill up that nation and to, to, to own it and re, to relate to God in it. The promise to make of Abram a great nation is the promise to give him descendants and to give him land. Now, here's where the trick comes in for us. Because we just don't care that much about land and descendants, not compared to him. What we've got to do, knowing that the whole rest of the Bible unfolds these promises, what we've got to be able to figure out is why these things are still relevant to us. I mean, most of us are city dwellers. We're happy if we've got a quarter of an acre. That's a big yard, right? And we're, we're more than happy to have it. We're not really thinking about acquiring lots of land. And children have, have never been more necessary, or never been, excuse me, never been less necessary to their parents now than at any time in history. We've got, at least the next generation, has social security to cover them when they get old. Well, four children were your social security. You needed them to support you in your old age. We don't rely on children. We don't really want land. And yet these promises have got to mean something to us if the Bibles have any continued meaning today. So, so what, what is it, if you boil it down, that this promise of land and descendants represents, and how do we connect with those promises? I think that's the question we've got to answer. I'm going to answer it first by saying something about why this, this promise of land and descendants mattered so much in the, in the story that the Bible's telling, and then say something about how it still matters, how we can connect with that promise, why it's a, a, a still a good word to us. I think, I think what we have to understand is that the problem of sin the problem that Abram and his, his relationship with God is supposed to solve is fundamentally a problem of allegiance. It's a problem of allegiance. God created for himself a people that was going to live in a relationship of love and dependence on him. That's how the creation of Adam and Eve is framed in the first two chapters of Genesis. And he created for them a perfect place to relate with him. The Garden of Eden is a place where all their needs were met. They, did, they, they were told to cultivate it, but not to keep it going. It was Everything that they needed was, was provided for them. The, the environment was one in which they rested fully on what God offered to them. He was their only source of support, and they owned that and relished that. That was the, that was the goal. You can think of the Garden of Eden as a, as a kind of mini-kingdom where you have a king and you have his subjects, you have an, a land in which they live, and a perfect relationship of harmony and submission and provision and all of the things that, that go into a healthy kingdom relationship. That, that was the goal. And that's precisely what 
what was lost when Adam and Eve chose to sin. What they did was try to put themselves in the place of the king who had given them clear instructions. And now they're saying, we want to be wise. We want to be like God. We will take this fruit that's been prohibited from us. And with it, we will take God's place. Same thing we saw in the story of the Tower of Babel last week. Rather than being content to obey the the commands that God had given them, they tried to gather together to make a name for themselves and build something that was going to collapse the difference between heaven and earth. That's the the meaning behind that random, weird-sounding tower that's at the center of the story. It's a symbol of their desire to collapse the difference between God and them. They wanted their own kingdom. Sin is a problem of allegiance. So the solution to sin, the solution to the brokenness of the world, looks like God recreating a people to relate to him rightly and a place in which they can depend on him fully for everything that they need. The promises of land and descendants ultimately are a promise to restore everything that was lost through sin. It's a promise to create a nation, a new kingdom. Abraham now represents the building blocks of that kingdom. The rest of the Bible, the rest of the story that it tells is just of these promises developed and fulfilled. And I think we have, it's a very short step to connect ourselves and the way that we normally think about God with the perspective on God that's trying to be restored in the promises to Abraham. Ultimately, our, our relationship to God and the brokenness that's in it is not going to look like us taking fruit that was forbidden to us and, and taking a big bite out of it. That's not, that's not our style. But I think that we relate to God in the same way, as useful to us to the extent that he can supplement our lives and give us something that we want that will make, maybe, maybe make us more happy, maybe make us more successful. When we think about the question of God's existence, we wonder about it because we wonder what we could get out of him if he does exist. Can God make me happy? Can he give me success? Can he give me the family that I want or a spouse that I love or financial security? And if we don't have those things we aren't happy with our circumstances, then we start to wonder whether God exists because if he exists, surely he would want us to have all of these things. We show what we want. Our default relationship to God, if we believe he exists, is what we want is a genie in a bottle. That if we rub in just the right way, he's going to give us what we want. He's going to give us the wishes, grant our wishes. That's how we normally think about God, and that's exactly how Adam and Eve thought about God. So that as soon as they thought he wasn't giving them what they wanted, they were going to claim it for themselves. If that's how we think about God, then our, our relationship with him needs the same kind of restoration that's promised in these promises to Abraham. What's promised is a people who worship him rightly and a place in which they fully enjoy all the provision that he gives to them of the things that matter most. The promises to Abraham, those promises for restoration are exactly what we need. So the question becomes, why Abraham? And how do those promises come to us? I've said the the rest of the Bible is a story of these promises being fulfilled, especially in Genesis and and Exodus. And you see the people of Israel enter into this new land and and God give it to them. And you uh, you see them have a priesthood established and all of these rituals for relating to God in the way that's proper, for showing that they depend on him in the right way. You see them rise and fall time and again. And ultimately, when Jesus shows up on the scene, what is he promising? The first thing out of his mouth in the Gospel of Mark is that he is here because the kingdom of God is at hand. He is coming to establish precisely what God promised he would do through Abraham, a land and a people which boils down to a nation. That's what Jesus came to institute. So 
So if that's what Je- why Jesus matters, is that he brings the kingdom. The, the, the primary question we've got to ask ourselves is how do we attach to what Jesus came to bring? And I think if we're going to understand that answer to that question, how we're going to attach to this kingdom Jesus came to bring, we've got to understand how Abraham, the vehicle of salvation, received the promises that God made to him and ultimately through him to us. Why Abraham? How did he relate to God? I think when I, when I look at this story about Abraham, and, and especially as it continues to get developed in later chapters, what stands out most to me is all that Abraham wasn't, not what he was. What stands out to me is his weakness, not his strength. Think about it. God comes to Abraham promising to make his name great. It's hard not to read that promise in light of the chapter 11 that we looked at last week, where all the people gathered at Babel to make their own name great. Here God is going to make Abraham's name great. And it's obvious why. If Abraham is going to have a great name, it's, it's going to have to be because God gives it to him. He has got nothing to bring to the table. Think about it. What God is promising is descendants. Abram is 75 years old and married to a woman who's barren. He has no possibility on his own of achieving any kind of descendants. God's also promising him land, a place to live. Abram is a tent dweller. He's a nomad. He travels around from place to place herding his sheep. He has, by definition, no land. So if you are going to build a new people based on the promises of descendants and land, this guy is the last one that you would want to build that kingdom on. Unless, unless what you wanted to show was that the, the construction of this kingdom was all of God that there is no explanation for how it came together except that God built it. God's going to make a great name for Abram, but not like American Idol makes a great name for some musician. American Idol is about discovering talent that's already there, right? What these people need, well, I mean, that's arguable. We all, if any of us who've seen it, that's arguable, but, but just grant me that premise for now. American Idol is about discovering talent that's already there. They just didn't have a platform before. It's essentially for people who just needed a publicist. God is not Abram's publicist. There is nothing in him worthy of building this kind of kingdom on. And that's precisely why God chooses him. Because he's got nothing to bring to the table. So if that's, if that's not what Abram represents... If the vehicle of salvation and participation in the kingdom that ultimately comes in Jesus is not about what we bring to the table, what is it about? How do we plug into it? And Abram Abram leads us there as well. Because what this story tells is of a man who is driven by a radical faith in God. Immediately, he's told, starting out in verse 1 of chapter 12, to to leave everything, to leave everything he had known and go into this land that God was going to give him. And here's this guy who's 75 years old, part of a culture that has nothing, that looks nothing like modern America where you can reinvent yourself at will. This was a culture in which you were stuck where you were born. You owned that station and you made the best of it. And you depended on everything that was around you, your family and, and the, the, the heritage that had been handed down to you for survival and for meaning in life. And Abram is called to leave it all behind and he does it. And what does he do when he gets there? He finds out when he gets to this land, it's still full of Canaanites. It's still full of people who are a challenge, a threat, a direct threat to the fulfillment of the promises that he's received. 
his response was not to turn around and go home, but to, to show yet again how deep his faith was. What he does is he goes to the places marked out in this land as places for meeting with the deity. This is something that doesn't come through in the passage on the surface of it. But if the Old Testament scholars who are familiar with this ancient world, when they read this, 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 these words about Abraham going through the land and stopping at this special tree or going into the hill country next to Bethel, what they're seeing in that is that these were holy sites. This is a sacred tree where if you prayed in just the right way to just the right God of this tree, you'd get what you wanted. Abram goes to the sites where the people of that land sought security and significance from the gods. They sought value from the gods. Abram goes specifically to those places, and what does he do? He builds altars to the Lord, and we're told simply that he calls upon the name of the Lord. I like the way Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann puts it. He said that Abraham's calling on the Lord's name here means that he had resolved to cling to none other than to the promise maker. Even among the Canaanites, the building of an altar is an assertion that the promise maker is being trusted. It's a polemic against every other God and every other loyalty. What he's doing when Abram builds these altars and calls upon the name of the Lord is making a statement against all other objects of trust. The people in this land, they trusted what they could get out of this sacred tree or whoever, whatever God was represented there. Abram is saying, they are not trustworthy. The Lord is trustworthy. I believe his promises and I'm calling on him only. So, the vehicle of salvation, how it comes to us, if Abraham is our guide, is not fitness, but faith. And that matters to us because we've seen that the salvation promised here is the same salvation that's promised throughout the Bible and fulfilled finally in Jesus. And that means that those, there's a sense in which these promises were made directly to Abram and, and not to us. And the call was his too. The promises also extend to us somehow. And we're to respond exactly like he did. That's why Paul in Galatians, he, he calls all those who have faith sons of Abraham. What it means to be one of his descendants is to respond to God like he did. What it means to participate in the kingdom of Abram's followers, his descendants, is to relate to God in the same dependent posture that Abraham did. What's radically counterintuitive about the Bible's message of salvation is that it just doesn't depend on us. We tend to believe most of the religions in the world teach the same thing, that we're judged based on how we perform. That if we, if we can muster up enough goodness, if we can achieve enough in this life, if our good deeds can outweigh our bad deeds, then ultimately God is going to respond to us well. The Bible teaches here, though, and throughout, that God saves in spite of what's in us, not because we clean up our act first. We're, what it teaches is that we're no more responsible for our salvation than old Abram was with his old barren wife, who could be any more than they were responsible for fathering a nation full of descendants. We're no more responsible for cleaning up our act and earning God's favor than a homeless Abram was for his kingdom's land. What we're left with, what we're, what we're ultimately called to is, is the faith of Abram, to trust in the security and the significance that God provides in place of all other competing options. For us to call on the name of the Lord, like Abram did here in the story, it's not going to look like us building an altar of rocks in the place of some holy site. That's not our style anymore. 
It's much more subtle than that, but it's just as necessary. What it'll look like is for us to be able to look in the mirror and not like what we see there and call upon the name of the Lord. In the place, in the midst of a culture that tells us that what we look like is what we, is, is, is the definition of our value. What it will look like is for us to look at our bank account and call upon the name of the Lord. In a culture that tells us how big that number is, is how valuable you are. What it will look like is for us to look at our house or our cars and call upon the name of the Lord. To look at our resume and all of our credentials and call upon the name of the Lord as the only one who can justify us before God. No matter our accomplishments, good or bad in this life. Now, before moving on quickly to the last point, I want, I want to encourage those of you who may feel like even faith comes hard. What we're trying to build here is a picture of these promises of God that come to us not because we're good and, and, and can, can earn his favor, but because we trust in him and, and rest on what he's offered us. But for some of us, at sometimes even that faith, even that, that trust in God very, comes, comes very hard to us. We get pressed in on all sides by these circumstances in our lives that seem to call into doubt whether or not God can be believed. We see what he's offered to us. We see what we're confronted with. And those two things don't seem compatible. And so we, we tend to question whether or not he's for us or whether or not we have found his favor. And, and if faith comes hard for you, you're in good company. Look at, we, can't, we could look at Abraham's radical obedience here and think that there's no way we could do that. But there's a lot more to the Abraham story than what we've just looked at. There's a lot more than this radical kind of faith. His faith came just as hard to him as ours does when it was confronted with circumstances that called God's love and wisdom and power into question. The, it, the call was to not perfection, but action. As soon as this account we've just read, immediately after this account, Abram is already taking actions that seem to thwart the possibility of God fulfilling his promises. When he, when he runs into a problem with his nephew Lot over this land that God had promised to give them, he gives the better part of it away to Lot, throwing into question God's promise to give him the land. When he goes into Egypt, he's carrying his wife and the, the only possible vehicle for this promise being fulfilled, the promise of descendants, and he's afraid that because she's so beautiful that, that the king of Egypt is going to take her and kill him so he can have her for his wife. And so he comes up with this, this crazy scheme where he lies about being her brother so that he won't be killed. He's giving away the vehicle of God's promises being fulfilled. His faith is weak in that moment. It doesn't stop there. Again and again, Abram's faith is called into question because again and again, he trusts what he sees with his eyes more than he trusts the promises that God has given to him. What matters, though, the fact that we look at Abram and we see that his faith was good enough is an encouragement to those of us whose faith is weak that what matters is not so much the strength with which we hold on to these promises than as it is the, the strength of the promises to which we hold. Think, think of it as the strength of the branch that matters, not the, not the strength of your grip on that branch. What you're called to is not a perfect faith with no blemish of doubt, but to a faith that stakes its life on God's word being true. What you're called for is a step, much like Abram took, maybe filled with uncertainty. You may never outlive the uncertainty of that step, but a step nonetheless to stake your life to God's word being true. That's what you're called to. Now, finally and quickly, 
We've seen what the content of this solution to the world's problems is. It's God recreating a whole people for himself, represented in this promise for land and descendants. We've seen that it comes to us not by our proving our worthiness to get in on it, but just like Abram, it comes to us as people who have nothing to bring to the table except a resolve to trust that God's word is true. So now who is it available to? That's, that's the last question hanging over the story and that sets the rest of the Bible's storyline. And in the end of the promises God makes to Abraham, at the end of verse 3, we have one of the most radical facets of God's promises to his people Israel. The promise is that the salvation is coming to Abram not for his own sake, but so that in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, you need to understand how radical an idea this was at the time. This was a time in which tribalism was rife. All of these different tribes had their own deities, and they saw their deities as the means by which they could defeat and overthrow competing tribes. Their deities would have no interest in helping some competing tribe. The idea was to overthrow them. Here, Israel's God revealing itself to Israel's founder is revealing himself as not just the God of Israel, but the God of the whole world, who cares not just about the salvation of Israel, but about the salvation of the world. The promise is that the solution to the problems of Genesis 1 through 11 goes as far as the problems themselves. That's, one of, that's why one of my favorite lines in the Christmas, the Isaac Watts Christmas hymn, uh, Joy to the World, is, is that the, the promise stretches as far as the curse is found that the extent of Jesus' ministry and, and the effectiveness of his work goes far as the curse is found, that, that's what this promise is. In Abram, he is going to bless all the families of the world. We tend to think of that as a New Testament thing. We tend to think about it with, with Paul, who goes on all these missionary journeys, spreading the gospel throughout the, the, the nations of the world. But it's not just a New Testament thing. It's here. At the very beginning of God's promises to save the world is a promise that it's going to everybody. One of the most important tensions that runs through the Bible is that even though salvation is exclusive, even though it only comes through faith in God and for those of us who know of Jesus through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, even though that's the only means of salvation, it's also radically inclusive. It's salvation offered not just to those who have cleaned up their act enough to be worthy of it, but offered to to all those who will call on the name of Jesus. And in my mind, one of the most incredible features of Christianity, and I think one of the most important things that anybody who doubts the truthfulness of Christianity has got to explain, is how this religion, born in the midst of some deserts in Palestine, has been able to find such resonance in the nations of the world. So that medieval Europe, modern-day China or 19th-century India, people living in those radically different cultures with radically different ways of understanding the world and why it matters and what its meaning is, have all found in the promises of the gospel something that stirs their heart and calls them to faith. It's not something that can be pigeonholed in the way that many of the world's other religions are in, in one particular kind of culture. To me, that seems supernatural. And it seems to make a lot of sense in light of the portrait of salvation painted in Genesis chapter 12. Because if the gospel is what's claimed here, something that comes only from God, 
And if the success of God's intent to save the world depends ultimately not on his creatures but on him, then we would expect for the barriers that have kept understanding from being possible across the nations of the world in so many other ways would come crashing down under the weight of God's resolve to save for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Because salvation is all of him, nothing is impossible. And that never hit home with me more clearly than a few years back. I took a trip to parts of Central Asia, a part of the world that's full of nations ending in Stan. We, uh, we, I was traveling with a friend who worked for a company that oversaw a lot of work, including Christian humanitarian aid, in, in that part of the world. And I remember just being totally captivated by the long shot that any of these people would ever come to know Jesus. Why? Would someone living, a Muslim living in Kabul, ever believe that everything that they had ever known and all, everything that their parents had ever known and their parents before them and so on has, is wrong? And that this gospel message being preached there was right. And that led me to another question. How in the world, as a Christian, could you ever give your life to serving in a place where the odds are that great against someone coming to faith in Jesus? And the answer that I got again and again is that you do it because you believe ultimately that the success of the gospel and that and any other part of the world doesn't depend upon your ability to communicate clearly across the boundaries that have normally divided tribes and nations throughout all of history. But it depends ultimately on the God who created each of those tribes and who speaks even now into their hearts with power to change what they want. What we've seen is that God's promising to restore everything that's been broken by the fall. That a new hope is born with the advent of this obscure little nomadic shepherd in the middle of nowhere. We've seen that the promise is that everything broken by sin will be restored and that it comes only through faith in Jesus, through ultimately trusting in him in the way Adam and Eve failed to, trusting that what he gives to us and requires of us is good and right and true. And we've seen that it, it, that it is promised to go as far as the curse is found, even to the ends of the earth. What we'll see in the weeks to come is how these promises get developed. This is only the first of several times we're going to look at Abraham and his immediate descendants. What we want to do is read the rest of the Bible through the, the promises of Genesis chapter 12. And I hope that in doing that, your faith in the God of all ages and of all peoples will be greatly strengthened. Will you pray with me? We thank you, our Father, for a salvation that doesn't depend on us. We know the problems of the world all too well. We know that descriptions of brokenness and sin that are offered to us in Genesis is quirky as they may be because of cultural differences ultimately when you boil them down are the same ones that we struggle with today. And so what we ask for is that as we have looked at, this, at these promises that, that promise to wipe out the effects of sin, you would help us to see them not as some sort of distant and obscure and out-of-date promise to a shepherd just to give him more land to live on, but that we would see in it a promise to restore the relationships we have experienced as broken. We promise for, or we, we pray rather for, for hearts of joy to respond to the promises made here. 
we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see you through a spiritual sense through which the truth of your word, the trustworthiness of it is unmistakable and glorious to us. And so we pray for that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.